Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And today we're here to talk about environmental issues, in particular, environmental issues and how they impact tech companies. So we know that innovators and emerging tech companies like to see themselves as doing good things, helping out the environment, but is that always true? And if it's not true, when do they need to call outside experts? When do issues need to be raised up the chain within an organization? So to guide us through that discussion today, we have two leading experts from Winston Strawn. We have Jonathan Brightbill and Jenny Porter. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for having us. So let me just, just start with the, the highest level question. Can you describe some of the environmental issues that those in the tech sector need to be thinking about, need to be looking out for? Basically, this is almost a law school issue spotting question. What should they issue spot? Well, sure. So some of the things that they want to be thinking about is, of course, uh, energy is an important attribute of the tech sector and how they make things and the fact that then that their products are being used by consumers downstream. So tech, the tech sector uh, is an important contributor to ultimately, or can be a, a, a contributor uh, to energy output and therefore to carbon emissions. So it's one sector that has been identified by uh, policy regulators in the environmental space as one where more scrutiny uh, needs to be applied, and in particular on the disclosure and the reporting side, the so-called ESG. Um, there are a number of innovators in the tech space who are looking at new technologies to bring energy to the uh, those who need it, to the public and even to themselves, uh, looking at solar panels, uh, wind power, other things. and while those types of technologies are carbon-free or largely carbon-free in their production, they can have other environmental impacts over their life cycle. Um, there are uh, waste impacts. There can be impacts on wildlife and other things. Another key area is in the area of toxics and chemicals. Obviously, a lot of tech is built uh, using batteries, using heavy uh, metals, rare earths, other things, and there are disposal uh, concerns on the backside. And another area uh, is that while a lot of tech companies don't really think of themselves as having a significant environmental footprint on the manufacturing side, because a lot of their manufacturing is occurring overseas, uh, in Asia, and oftentimes in China, there is a, uh, a, a growing and developing uh, Chinese environmental regulatory system that has really changed in the course of the last five years to become much more rigorous and much more consequential, such that companies and entrepreneurs and developers here in the United States that haven't kind of historically thought of themselves as, as having a significant manufacturing environmental footprint may begin to see those things. Well, you, you brought up the, the actual renewable 
energy innovators. And that's a group that sees themselves very much as doing nothing but good for society. But that's not always true. Like you, you mentioned, the, the inputs into the manufacturing process may cause some problems um, and disposal on the back end may cause some problems. So what are the environmental challenges that you know, renewable energy innovators need to be thinking about as they build out a business plan short term and long term? Yeah. So uh, over the, the short term, there are, of course, issues, material issues in terms of depending on what they are importing. It can be subject to various environmental controls if they're toxic substances um, and uh, if they can have uh, impacts on human health, they can be subject to various regulatory oversight. There is the actual wildlife impacts on the deployment of some of these technologies or something that needs to be given advanced thought and needs to be carefully planned as uh, developers of solar panel fields or wind turbines and the like are looking to uh, uh, actually bring those technologies now to, to the field. So we're actually beginning to see and have seen now various plaintiffs and parties utilize environmental litigation, so the environmental statutes, to actually try to stop and block the deployment of renewable technology, renewable energy technologies, because of the claimed impacts on birds or for offshore wind uh, for mammals and whale, undersea mammals and whales. Well, the, the topic of ESG that came up in one of your earlier, earlier statements, and I don't know, Jenny, you want to give us a little background on, on ESG and then how that might actually be important for innovators to think about on the, on the front end? Yeah, of course. So first, just to start with, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And there's been a lot in this area that's happened recently. Um, to give you a quick background, in May, President Biden issued an executive order where he called for a comprehensive government-wide strategy on climate-related financial risks. So in response to this executive order, we've seen lots of different government agencies taking various actions. I think most notably the SEC announced by the end of this year, they expect that they're gonna propose a rule on mandatory ESG disclosures. And so why this is relevant for tech companies, uh, in response to that proposed rule, a group of attorney generals um, submitted public comments and they said, um, you know, there's typically sectors that you think about that have climate related risks like energy and oil, but they highlighted technology specifically as a sector that hasn't been thinking very much about their exposure to climate risk. And that the reason that this proposed rule is necessary is that all SEC regulated firms, including technology companies, need to be disclosing the risks that they're facing from climate change. Well, and it seems that, that if you've got a, an SEC rule coming, in the near future, and that regulates a certain size company, but that type of thought process was gonna slowly filter down into diligence for even the, the emerging company world. Is that a, a fair view of the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we've seen with SEC, obviously it's a certain type of company, like you said, but we've also seen, I think John mentioned recently, um, you know, 
private litigants and class action. And so technology companies that work with the government in various capacities could be subject to False Claims Act liability, you know, from the government or private litigants, depending on the type of work that they're doing. One of the things that this ESG movement presents is it, it presents both opportunities to innovators in the form of green financing, green lending, uh, opportunities to improve their uh, value or perceived value to their stakeholders by expressing certain uh, beliefs and then advancing those beliefs in the context of, of, of their businesses. So ESG provides opportunities on that side, but it also is something that is creating a certain amount of risk at the same time because the SEC, for example, and uh, the FTC has long been looking at these types of sustainability claims, but the SEC, for example, now is also looking at climate and sustainability claims and uh, examining those claims to determine whether or not they are sufficiently supported by the uh, data and information that companies have. And so uh, public companies actually already uh, have been receiving informational requests from the SEC, seeking more backup data and more information about their climate change um, disclosures in particular. And what you have is an interesting situation where ESG, while there are a lot of opportunities, also creates a sort of um, risk exposure multiplier for companies because they're now in the marketplace expressing values, expressing sustainability, saying they're advancing climate, setting goals and the like. And if those things don't um, come true for whatever reason, um, that presents risks. And one example of this, so uh, prior to coming to Winston and Strong, I was at the Justice Department uh, for a number of years in the Environment and Natural Resources Division, where uh, I was ultimately the acting assistant attorney general in charge of the civil and criminal enforcement of the environmental laws. And one of the very uh, famous series of cases that we were doing during the time I was at the Justice Department was against companies that were using uh, emissions cheating devices to evade emission standards and to claim that their vehicles were more, um, had better fuel economy or were cleaner um, and provided less emissions. Uh, and one of those was uh, very famously, most people are familiar with, with Volkswagen. But one of the interesting things about the Volkswagen case was uh, they had approximately, when it was all said and done, $6 billion of liability uh, from civil fines and penalties and injunctive relief and other things that they mitigation, other things as a result of the technical environmental violation. But uh, there are reports that they have uh, incurred 25 or more billion dollars for the um, disclosure related claims uh, that came from the fact that they were advertising themselves as having clean di diesel that they were placing themselves out as a more environmentally progressive uh, and thoughtful company. And those claims um, then resulted in additional liability above and beyond the environmental liabilities 
at the point um, at which the uh, emissions cheating was identified and pursued. So uh, even if, if, if companies are, are making climate and sustainability claims with the utmost of, of intention of keeping uh, those things, uh, keeping true to those pledges, the act of making claims, legal claims, you know, you once you've taken on the duty, once you've spoken, you now have a duty to speak accurately. Um, and uh, we're seeing an increasing number of cases uh, against all manner of uh, entities now uh, where these types of claims are being challenged. Well, you know, critics of the, the tech industry say that the tech industry has evaded real scrutiny in the environmental space because they managed to outsource all of their dirtiest activities. It's designed in the US, but it's built with toxic materials somewhere outside the US. Uh, will any of these regulations require better disclosure on who you, you know, domestic tech companies are partnering with to do some of their more difficult manufacturing work? I think the specifics of the regulations are yet uh, are yet to be seen, but I think that that is within the scope of the conversations that that are being contemplated across the range of, of ESG. Certainly, there are, for example, uh, it's already there are already regulations that have to do with um, conflict minerals uh, disclosures and the like from the Congo, uh, and you know there are other such disclosures that are contemplated and where. Uh, there are going to be duties that are placed upon public companies in particular to look up and down their supply chain. And so for, in the area of, you know, for example, um, climate change regulation, not just their scope one or, you know, their immediate emissions, but their scope two, or their scope three emissions, like the foreseeable emissions of their use of their products, um, as well as up and down their supply chains. So as there is more disclosure, you can anticipate that there will be more need to um, look at the suppliers and look at what their suppliers are doing. Um, and then in the area of toxics and chemicals, they, the EPA actually just recently has begun to state a very broad interpretation of the the Toxic Substances Control Act of, of uh, which was amended in 2016, uh, and uh, has recently begun to make statements that the scope of that statute uh, is broader than potentially broader than was historically applied uh, for the first uh, 40 years of the statute, uh, and that in particular. Uh, there are, uh, there's a, a proposed rule out that would ask for importers of finished articles uh, to look and uh, exercise, uh, do an examination of those, of the, of those finished goods and where they're coming from to determine uh, uh, whether they or not they have these uh, PFAS or PFOA uh, substances which there is a lot of public concern about. And, uh, and the interpretation that's being offered there is more aggressive, uh, arguably. Uh, and some have pointed out who commented on that rule that in the past. And so uh, that, that, that Tosca statute really does have the potential 
to make companies that were previously, you know, as you said, outsourcing, not having to necessarily worry about the direct environmental outputs of the products uh, that they are selling. Um, the, uh, the EPA rules, uh, if they are finalized uh, and, and particularly expanded to other areas, will have the potential to, to push uh, more of that environmental responsibility to importers um, and, uh, and retailers here in the United States. Well, a lot of tech companies, especially on the emerging side in the U.S., when they hear environmental issues, focus on the EPA, U.S. regulations, California regulations. They don't think about regulations coming online in China. And I understand things are changing. Give a, a background of what people should be aware of that the future may not look like the past. Sure. Yeah. So uh, before I returned to private practice, when I was at the Justice Department, uh, I actually traveled to China uh, for a period of time as a representative of the U.S. government and met with uh, judges, uh, environmental officials, academics, and others to talk about their environmental laws and their environmental enforcement uh, processes and programs. Uh, and in just a couple of short years, China has made really, really significant changes in how it goes about enforcing its environmental laws, brought, brought new line laws online uh, that have higher and more consequential penalties and have enforcement mechanisms that are more like what you see in the United States. And therefore, I think, uh, folks are anticipating that we're going to see a much more robust effort at environmental enforcement, right? I mean, historically, China was prioritizing economic development. And the beauty of the 2008 Beijing Games uh, is, is something that many people recall. Uh, and it was certainly a real coming out party for um, the People's Republic of China and declaring itself on the national stage. But there were also a, a fair number of, of really uh, eccentric uh, steps that had to be undertaken in order to get their environmental impacts under control in order to be able to uh, have those games. There were a lot of athletes that were concerned at the time about the air quality and other, other environmental aspects while there. And, uh, but since 2008, they've really made a lot of strides and they've moved from a system where the, the, the states and, the, and the, I should call them provinces and municipalities uh, were uh, making both the economic development decisions and the environmental uh, enforcement decisions and trading those things off, often in favor of economic development. They've created now a system where there is uh, a much more robust enforcement of environmental standards through courts that have now been established, thousands of courts. Um, now, um, citizen groups, NGOs, uh, have the ability to bring environmental lawsuits challenging polluters. Um, that's an innovation of just the last uh, six uh, years there. Uh, they now have the, uh, their, their prosecutors um, uh, also now have the capacity to bring suits and they've brought on many new statutes that parallel environmental statutes here in the United States. 
uh, and ultimately now even have a permitting program where uh, the uh, entities that want to manufacture and, and are going to release uh, pollutants into the environment need to get advanced permission before they do that, need to uh, monitor their emissions, need to report their emissions, need to publicize their emissions. And, uh, and so, and that program, which is really reminiscent of something that the United States did 50 years ago now, uh, took effect in March, just in March of this year. And so I think we can anticipate that you're going to see much more robust enforcement of the environmental laws in China um, going forward. So Jenny, I'll give you the, the last question. Um, you know, a, a lot of lawyers in emerging companies have a whole basket of responsibilities from you know, finding the, the next round of financing all the way over to figuring out how to get their, their next patent filed. Environmental disclosures may not be at the top of their, their list, but it sounds like they definitely need to be on the list. So if you're talking to that group, what are a few things they need to watch for in terms of disclosures or statements, things that are going to get them in trouble if they don't say them or if they do say them? I absolutely agree it should be on the list, and I would say maybe even top three. I think, as you've seen from this conversation, it's a really hot area of the law, and the U.S. government, China, private plaintiffs are paying attention to this, and we should expect to see increased litigation going forward. So if I were to give advice, I think, um, you know, the risk management and the compliance personnel in these companies need to review their procedures for making any environmental claims and ensure that everything's accurate and that it's ongoing. And then in terms of the public statements they make, um, I think we talked about earlier, it's really difficult to make forward statements because, you know, sometimes people are trying to predict out what, what's going to happen in 2015. It's very difficult. So I would recommend to the extent possible, back up the statements that you have with concrete data and just be extremely careful and very cognizant of the fact that lots of people, including the US government are paying attention to these statements. And if you are asked to defend them, you have the ability to. Well, thank you both for, for joining us today. Uh, undoubtedly, We'll be hearing more about this. And as the trial lawyers get involved, uh, it'll be, seems like a very exciting ride for the next few years. And I'm sure we'll be talking again about these topics. Take care. Well, great. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks for having us.